Welcome back to New Rockstars, I'm Eric Voss, and Star Wars. George Lucas's 1977 space opera revolutionized the way Hollywood films were shot, designed, scored, marketed, and consumed, turning nerdy passion projects about bickering droids into mainstream obsessions. Obsessions that, you know, these days are now considered dead on arrival by the very fans who claim to love them. Look, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of having to temper each positive statement about Star Wars with an acknowledgement of recent installments' divided receptions. I love it. I wear this shirt under every other shirt. Smells like a Wookiee. I don't care. And to remind myself, and hopefully you, about how fortunate we are to have this franchise in our lives, I am going back to the beginning with a full, in-depth rewatch and analysis of the original Star Wars. All the Easter eggs, cultural references, visual details that I'm only now seeing because it's hard to scrutinize this imagery through Kleeple baby boy tears. It begins, as these always do, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Lucas's inspiration for Star Wars was a fantasy adventure in the style of Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers. Actually, the opening crawls and wipe transitions were all taken from those serials. Rather than the science fiction cinema of the time, best known as Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, Lucas's story is pure fantasy. Setting it in space doesn't make it sci-fi, folks. You know what else is in space? You, me, us, right now. Everything is space. A Long Time Ago is Lucas's way of setting that fantasy tone. The title of an early script draft was The Adventures of Luke's Starkiller as taken from the Journal of the Wills, Saga 1, The Star Wars, A Mouthful Story. The Journal of the Wills referred to Lucas's old concept of the Wills, spiritual beings who tell these stories as a kind of religious text. The draft centered around a Jedi Bindu named Mace Windy and his apprentice C.J. Thorpe. Sounds like a, a guy who was on my swim team in high school. These details were changed, but later films called them back, of course with Mace Windu, Starkiller Base in The Force Awakens, and The Guardians of the Wills in Rogue One. Onto the famous opening crawl, with Lucas's original version reportedly stretched into six paragraphs with four sentences each and was shortened to another version, but the final version that we see in the film was revised by Brian De Palma, director of Scarface and Carrie and good friend of George Lucas's. The original 1977 version was simply titled Star Wars, but with the 1981 print of the movie and all following versions, Lucas changed the title to Star Wars Episode IV A New Hope to place it smack in the middle of this whole canonical timeline. The storytelling principle is called En Medias Res, and it's consistent with the way Star Wars follows beat for beat the classic hero's journey outlined by Joseph Campbell. Lucas reportedly read Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces between drafts of his script, and really Luke Skywalker's story is modeled on the story of King Arthur. A farm boy from humble beginnings meets a Merlin figure, wields a magical sword, and rescues a kingdom. And we must acknowledge the music composed so masterfully by John Williams, with soaring symphonic swells inspired by the classical music in space contrast of 2001. Williams' main title theme was actually inspired by the theme of the 1942 film King's Row, scored by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. And Williams' fourth theme was inspired by the works of Wagner. Yeah, Williams doesn't hide the fact that he gets his stuff from a lot of other places, but boy, does he make it all sing. As the crawl drifts out into the stars, blasting past us is the Tantive Four, in hot pursuit by Darth Vader's Imperial Star Destroyer, the Devastator. Two ships that were not yet named at this point, but were retroactively named. This imagery of a detailed, seemingly never-ending spacecraft filling the screen is actually an homage to Kubrick's shot of the Discovery 1 in 2001. And it uh, led to my favorite gag in Spaceballs. And then we get the first spoken lines of this saga. Did you hear that? They shut down the main reactor. They'll be destroyed for sure. Focusing the film's first half hour on non-human characters 
It's actually a pretty bold move at the time. Lucas actually deleted a number of first act scenes with Luke watching the battle from below and hanging out with friends. They called him Wormy. But really, Lucas was taking influences from Japanese samurai films like Akira Kurosawa's Sanjuro. And the relationship between C-3PO and R2-D2 evolved from the two bickering peasants, Tahei and Marashichi, and Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. Actually, Hidden Fortress Easter eggs appear again throughout this film. The Imperial Crest design was based on a Japanese family crest, and Admiral Mahdi almost said Hidden Fortress before Vader memorably cuts him off. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes, or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebels' hidden fortune. 3PO's design was inspired by the silver female robot Maria in Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Now, 3PO's gold, but notice that his right shin is silver. Originally, he was just given a mismatched leg as part of Lucas's overall vision of a scrappy, lived-in world. But later, canon was actually updated to explain that in the years between Revenge of the Sith and this film, a bomb was placed in 3PO's leg and that leg had to be replaced, but the new part that was added was not dipped in gold like the rest of him was. Meanwhile, Lucas came up with the name R2-D2 during post-production on his previous film, American Graffiti, with the sound crew asking for real number two of the second dialogue track, which came out as, could you get R2-D2 for me? Now the Rebels lose the shootout with the Stormtroopers, whose namesake was the Nazi paramilitary unit, the Empire's heartless imperialism, coldly efficient bureaucracy and officer uniform design were all inspired by the Nazis. And along with Vader, notice that the Empire is always depicted in monochrome shades, designed as a contrast to the earth tones worn by the Rebels and the Jedi. Enter the best villain of film history, Darth. Vader. His suit was actually one of the many designs of legendary artist Ralph McQuarrie. McQuarrie wanted Vader to be able to breathe while he was traveling from his ship to the Tantive Four, thus his breathing apparatus, which would also later be retroactively explained through a different backstory. He wears robes similar to those worn by Bedouin warriors. James Earl Jones dubbed the voiceover a physical performance by bodybuilder David Prowse, and the breathing sound effect was created by the sound designer breathing through the mask of a scuba regulator. Leia hides a drive with a Death Star plans on R2, and 3PO worries... We'll be sent to the spice mines of Kessel, smashed into who knows what. Spice in the Star Wars universe is the generic term for drugs, and it's one of the many terms Lucas lifted directly from Frank Herbert's Dune series, along with things like moisture farms and the voice, which is a controlling ability similar to the Force. Also a pretty cool spinny chair show. We actually see the spice mines of Kessel that 3PO is worrying about in Solo A Star Wars Story, where Lando's droid L337 does get, as 3PO fears, smashed into who knows what. And if you think about who knows what is actually the uh, operating system of the Millennium Falcon. Anyway, Vader snaps the neck of Captain Remus Antilles and detains Leia as 3PO and R2 take an escape pod down to the surface of Tatooine. Shot in Tunisia, its name actually comes from the Tunisian town of Tatooine, spelled differently, in Tunisia's rural south. 3PO passes this skeleton. Now this is the skeleton of a crate dragon. And this prop actually still lies in the Tunisian desert, if you wanna go wander out there and find it. The comic Star Wars Tales 15 Sandstorm features a 10-year-old Luke getting attacked by a crate dragon and envisioning young Anakin in a fever dream. Later in this film, the scream that Obi-Wan makes to scare off the sand people is the roar of a crate dragon, uh, but more on this later. R2 gets taken by Jawas and he rejoins 3PO and then they both get sold to Luke Skywalker and his uncle Owen Lars. This moisture Farm home, like all the sets in this film, reflect what Lucas called a used future. Lucas commissioned production designers John Barry and Roger Christian after helping them shovel salt as they were dressing a different movie's salt factory set, and they had this idea of applying that whole dirty factory look to all of Star Wars, one of the many things that make this original trilogy so 
great. As 3PO gets his oil bath, Luke plays with a model of a T-16 Skyhopper. This is the vessel he piloted in Beggar's Canyon, and everybody gets to know each other. You can call me Luke. I see, said Luke. <laughs> Not just Luke. 3PO calling Luke Sir is another nod to the Arthurian legend influences, and foreshadows Luke's future as a Jedi Knight. Shortly after, this young hero receives his call to adventure. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But like all farm kids, Luke gets pressured to a miserable life of sucking drops of water from dirt. Look, it's only one more season. Yeah, that's what she said when Biggs and Tank left. Biggs refers to Biggs Darklighter, Luke's friend who went off to the Academy, whom Luke actually hung out with in those deleted scenes. For the special edition, Lucas added the reunion scene between Luke and Biggs on the Rebel base. That was not in the original version. Audiences were a bit confused when Luke reacted so dramatically to Biggs' death. Next, twin sunset. Tatooine orbits a pair of binary stars, superheating the whole planet so that it's only habitable at its poles. Actually, in 2015, NASA reported that planets Kepler-16b and Kepler-453b orbit binary star systems, just like Tatooine does. I would call this nature reflecting arts, but you know those NASA nerds are just looking for any parallels to Star Wars they can find. While looking for R2, Luke and 3PO are attacked by Tusken Raiders. They ride a bantha, the source of the blue milk that Luke drinks. This is actually an elephant dressed in fur and fake horns. Some have speculated that these Tusken Raiders attack Luke as revenge for his father Anakin slaughtering them in Attack of the Clones. This is not confirmed. It's more likely that Tusken Raiders are just dangerous and turf protective. As they raid the land speeder, we get this freaky moment. So this is Obi-Wan Kenobi faking the roar of a crate dragon to try to scare him off. Now, what you just heard is the most recent redub in the 2011 Blu-ray edition. In the original 1977 version and the 1997 special edition, it was this. And then, for whatever reason, in the 2004 DVD release, Lucas updated it to this. And yeah, now in 2011, it's this monstrosity. This is one of the many effects Lucas updated throughout these continual recuts, which has become a point of ire among Star Wars originalists. Look, for better or worse, part of the whole story of Star Wars is Lucas's obsessive tinkering. And personally, to me, it represents an even more fascinating narrative about whether art should remain fixed or evolve. I'll come back to this throughout this breakdown. Obi-Wan saves Luke and calls to R2. Come here, my little friend. Don't be afraid. In The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams actually sampled Alec Guinness's line here to form the word Ray in that Force vision sequence. Obi-Wan takes Luke back to his home and tells him about his relationship with his father. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. First time we hear the word Jedi. Lucas derived the word Jedi from the Japanese words Jedi Geki, which is a term for the Japanese soap opera that's set in samurai times. Now notice the patch on Obi-Wan's right shoulder. Some have suggested this could have been caused by the burn marks Obi-Wan endured during his battle with Anakin on Mustafar. Now, this would imply that Obi-Wan only has one pair of robes, Laundry day must be tough. And to me, the patch looks like it's in a different spot, but certainly this duel is on Obi-Wan's mind in this moment. There was a shot in Revenge of the Sith where we see him in a close-up picking up Anakin's lightsaber, which would lead to this eventual handoff. Your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight, not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic, before the Dark Times. 
before the Empire. The Oscar-winning sound effects for this film were mixed by sound designer Ben Burt. To produce the lightsaber hum, Burt combined the hum of an idling 35mm film projector with the feedback of passing a stripped microphone by a TV set. Nowadays, the sound effect is made by nerds in their basement just as they knock over furniture. Then Obi-Wan explains to Luke the Force. The Force? The Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Yeah, all this cosmic abstract language from this Merlin figure related to this mythical weapon definitely evokes the language that Tolkien used when Gandalf was describing the Ring of Power to Frodo. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, find them. In Lucas's early drafts, May the Force Be With You was actually May the Force of Others Be With You, and this was before the Force was detached from like the collective will of a bunch of other people to a more cosmic, disembodied life energy. This is my Force dance. Force. After hearing Leia's distress call, notice the somewhat awkward edit going on here as we go back and forth from Luke to Obi-Wan. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. Alderaan. Yeah, I'm with Luke here. What the f are you talking about, old man? The reason for this awkwardness is actually that the scene was cut up and reordered in post-production. It was shot so that it begins with Leia's message, and then Obi-Wan tells Luke about his father in the Force. That's why Obi-Wan is suddenly leaning forward and talking about the Force again when we cut back to him. If you were to re-edit this, you could actually see how these puzzle pieces fit less awkwardly before. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. Now the reason this was changed was probably the planet name of Alderaan, and Lucas wanting to have it been more recently stated so audiences still unfamiliar with Alderaan don't get too thrown. See, things like this are the reason a lot of people are uneasy with all the tinkering. The filmmaking here is imperfect, but it's also still great because it represents interesting problem solving. That's what all of filmmaking is. In this slightly awkward patch, just like the one on Obi-Wan's robe, is something that ought to be preserved. Meanwhile, Vader and Tarkin meet with the Imperial officers, including poor Admiral Mahdi, who is having a day. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Notice that throughout the scene, Grand Moff Tarkin is always seen with his lower legs covered. It's because Peter Cushing's costume boots didn't fit too well, and he shot most of these takes in slippers. Luke and Obi-Wan find the stormtroopers have laid waste to the Jawa's transport, as well as Luke's home and poor Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. Their charred skeletons are the most vivid gore, in my opinion, that we will ever see in a Star Wars film. And this violence is critical, because at this stage in the hero's journey, Luke must be violently shaken from his status quo. Ironically, Owen was afraid of Luke becoming like his father when it was Owen and Beru who suffered fates that are most like those of Anakin Skywalker. So they head off to the spaceport at Mos Eisley. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Or one of more special edition CGI because nothing showcases ILM magic like a big ass blocking the main characters. Obi-Wan pulls off his Jedi mind tricks on the Stormtrooper and they head into the cantina, which George Lucas included as an homage to the Sergei Leone Western trope of gunslingers and bars. The bartender says, Hey, we don't serve their kind here. This bartender's name is actually Wooer, and his hatred of droids is explained in the book from a certain point of view in which, as a boy, he lost his parents at the hands of battle droids during the Clone Wars. 
traumatizing him. Unfortunately, he's surrounded by droid imagery on all sides because one of those distillery pots behind the bar was later reused as the head of the IG-88 assassin in Empire Strikes Back. This canteen is great. It has a number of odd background characters, including men in NASA astronaut suits with the patches covered up. The Wolfman lacks Sivrak, whose close-up was removed in the special edition, but you can still see him in the background. And of course, Panda Baba and Dr. Evazan, who also appeared on Jeddah in Rogue One. Obi-Wan him up. One of the few times a lightsaber doesn't immediately cauterize a wound. Again, the blood makes it real and great. But no time for that. We got another introduction here. On Solo. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, you are. Originally, George Lucas planned the character of Han Solo to be a huge green-skinned monster with no nose and gills, but a, a slightly handsomer Harrison Ford got the part by reading sides during auditions after his role in Lucas's American Graffiti. His co-pilot, Chewbacca, was based on Lucas's Alaskan Malamut dog named Indiana, whom Lucas would later use as a namesake for Indiana Jones, who also took his nickname from his family dog. For Chewie's Wookiee growls, Bert combined the sounds made by dogs and bears, lions, tigers, and walruses. Han describes the Falcon. It's a ship that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. Famously, this line has been scrutinized for using a unit of distance, parsecs, to describe time. With maybe the confusion coming from parsecs. A lot of guys who wear shirts like this have lives filled with confusion from parsecs. But Solo, a Star Wars story, clarified this as, in fact, not a fact error. Because the Millennium Falcon speed is a factor of its superior navigation system, gained from the OS of Lando's droid L337, which expeditiously calculated the shortest distance through the dangerous Kessel Run Nebula. Han runs into Greedo in the most infamous of Lucas's re-edits. Originally, Han's argument with Greedo ends with Han shooting Greedo from under the table, creating this blinding explosion, and Greedo just slumps forward dead. Han coldly walks out of the cantina. It was awesome, no complaints. But then, the 1977 special edition included a laughably bad VFX insert of Greedo pointing a gun at Han, Greedo firing first, somehow missing him feet away, hitting the wall as Harrison Ford's face awkwardly bent to the side, and then Han fires. Lucas said that he changed it because years later in his mind, Han, I guess, couldn't be a cold-blooded killer if he was going to marry Leia, and that he should be a more noble John Wayne-style cowboy who only kills in self-defense. Yeah, nope. After this backlash in the 2004 DVD release onward, Han and Greedo now shoot at roughly the same time. Yeah, okay. They were gonna try to laugh off this whole controversy in a deleted scene from The Phantom Menace, in which a young Greedo shows up on Tatooine in a fist fight with Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, good cut. The 97 special edition also added this scene with a CGI Jabba the Hutt mapped over stand-in actor Declan Mulholland, a scene that was deleted from the original. Boba Fett was also added here. It was kind of cool to see this in 97. Now, it seems kind of weird because the CGI doesn't age too well. But I do like this moment when Han passes behind Jabba and steps on his tail. That weird motion blur on Harrison Ford is due to the fact that they had to animate the original footage to have Ford step up because Ford originally passed behind Mulholland, who of course was smaller than Jabba, and they couldn't have Ford pass through Jabba's tail, so they created this gag to cover it. Again, clever problem solving. It's great. Just don't tinker to create more problems. In the Falcon cockpit, there's a pair of golden dice hanging. These were stolen from the set, never replaced in Empire or Jedi. But these dice return as a major prop in The Last Jedi and Solo A Star Wars Story. They escape from the stormtroopers, depart Tatooine, and jump to light speed. Tarkin threatens to blow up Leia's home planet of Alderaan, and Leia tells them that the rebels are in the actually deserted base on the planet. Dantooine. Dantooine has actually later appeared in the books and animated series. Its evacuation was going to be shown in Rogue One, but it was scrapped, gonna be too expensive. And an early version of The Force Awakens was going to show the planet Dantooine turn into the Doom Star, which was an early name for Starkiller Base. 
So Targan blows up Alderaan anyway, because he's a space Nazi. And after some hollow chess and religious debate on board the Falcon, they arrive to the space Alderaan once was. In an early draft, they were going to arrive at Cloud City, which would have been floating above Alderaan at the time of the explosion, with the duel with Vader happening on Cloud City, and then things move on to the Death Star. But all this was removed. Cloud City was later reused in Empire. And they approach the Death Star, leading Luke to utter this trademark line. I have a very bad feeling about this. They escape the search by hiding in the floor compartment, a tactic that Rey and Finn will later steal in The Force Awakens. They escape with stolen Stormtrooper suits. Now notice that the Stormtrooper armor contains this tubular holster on the back. Originally, many of the Stormtroopers were also going to carry lightsabers, but at the time they were considered less significant laser swords. This would have been where those swords were holstered. They escort Chewie to the detention level. Where are you taking this thing? Yeah, dick move by this officer, by the way. People know what Wookiees are. Anyway, back to the clip. Prisoner transfer from cell block 1138. 1138 is a nod to George Lucas's previous film, THX 1138. And there's also a nod in Leia's cell number. Here it is. 2187. You go and get her. I'll hold him here. 2187 is the name of an abstract 1964 short film that Lucas loved. It featured this influential voiceover. Many people feel that, that in, in sort of the contemplation of nature and in communication with other living things, they become aware of some kind of force or, or something behind this apparent mask. It's interesting to consider this in the context of masks in Star Wars, both Vader's and in more recent films, Finn, whose first order ID was FN2187. They rescue Leia and escape into the trash compactor, where Luke is attacked by this tentacled monster. This is named the Dianoga, and it began the trend of at least one big gross creature in every Star Wars film, even if all it does is breastfeed. Now notice the hatch in this trash compactor. This is the same set piece as the airlock door from the Tantive Four. It was just painted white. They had to reuse sets to save production costs. The stormtroopers find 3PO and R2, leading to this humorous mishap. Take over. That doink of the stormtrooper's head hitting the door was added by Lucas in the special edition because fans love this so much. Contrary to the theory that the hit was caused by poor helmet visibility, the actor claimed that he just had an upset stomach that day. Obi-Wan runs into Darth Vader, and their duel, in comparison to the more aggressive duels of later films, is slower. It's more patient. Always two hands on the hilts. That's because Lucas based this sword combat on the fight choreography of samurai films which had fewer, more deliberate strikes. The only contact Princess Leia has with Obi-Wan in this film is the brief moment she witnesses the end of the duel. They escape thanks to Obi-Wan having disabled the tractor beam, leading to an intense dogfight with the TIE Fighters. <laughs> sound designer Bird produced the scream of the TIE Fighter by combining the squeal of a young elephant with the sound of a car driving by on a rain-slicked highway. Between that and the Banthas, elephants getting a lot of work in this movie. Lucas took inspiration for this dogfight along with the trench run from World War II cockpit camera footage and World War II era movies like Dam Busters, Flying Tigers, Flying Leathernecks, and The Battle of Britain. The rebel base on Yavin 4 is housed in the ancient Great Temple of the Masasi, built by the Masasi to worship the Sith Lord Naga Sato, who enslaved and mutilated their race. Lucas shot all these scenes in Mayan temples in Guatemala. Rebel leader Jan Dadana briefs the pilots on the Death Star schematics, the only computer animation in the original cut. This animation was filmed on 35mm and rear projected. And no one saved that original animation, so the designers of these battle plans in Rogue One had to recreate it to perfectly match. As the Death Star closes in on Yavin 4, Vader utters this fateful line. This will be a day long remembered. It has seen the end of Kenobi and will soon see the end of the rebellion. Vader was right, of course, but only because the destruction of the Death Star was the turning point that would lead to the Rebels no longer needing to rebel. 
in a way, the beginning of the end of the rebellion. And this leads to one of the finest sequences of filmmaking of all time, the trench run assault on the Death Star. Their attack strategy involves the X-Wing Red Squadron and the Y-Wing Gold Squadron. Gold was meant to charge down the trench and hit the target while Red provided cover. Vader saw through that strategy and spoiled it, taking out the Y-Wings and forcing the X-Wings to take point, confirming the clue dropped by Obi-Wan earlier about Luke's father. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. Now, originally, an X-Wing Blue Squadron was going to be included here, but the blue paint on the vessels wouldn't have worked on the blue screen that they used for the VFX chroma key. Thus, why R2-D2's blue paneling appears desaturated during the trench run. Now, Rogue One documents the fate of the Blue Squadron in the preceding Battle of Scarif, as well as the vacancy of the Red 5 position, which Luke filled. Now, as I mentioned before, George Lucas took a lot of inspiration from the Dam Busters, in which RAF bombers fly low to take out heavily defended reservoirs, just like all the Rebel pilots do here. The intense quick cutting and point of view cockpit shots were all taken directly from this World War II imagery, which was an aesthetic that every Star Wars film since would later continue. Lucas even took dialogue from the Dam Busters. I'm gonna cut across the axis and try and draw their fire. I'll fly across the dam as you make your run and try and draw the flag off you. And notice this line. Hurry, Luke, they're coming in much faster this time. We can't hold them. Yeah, he says this time because in an earlier version of the film, Luke made two trench bombing attempts, with the first one failing. That first attempt was removed, but the line was kept in. Luke heeds Obi-Wan's voice and uses the Force to guide his proton torpedoes. And that, plus a last-minute save from Han and Chewie on the Falcon, allows this Arthurian hero to save the kingdom. In the end, Leia awards Luke and Han with medals, medal that actually comes back in the Rise of Skywalker, but disgracefully, Chewie is snubbed. And the only kind of official reason we've ever received for Chewie not getting a medal comes from the Marvel Comics adaptation of the movie, which explained, quote, Chewbacca, of course, will have his own medal, but he will have to put it on himself. Few space princesses are that tall. Which uh, kind of just sounds like a passively racist line from that D-bag officer on the detention level. Where are you taking this thing? And credits, but this Star Wars rewatch ain't over, folks. I plan to continue this series through The Empire Strikes Back, The Return of the Jedi, and the prequels, which should put us just in time for The Rise of Skywalker releasing in December. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EAVoss, follow new rock stars on socials, subscribe to our podcast feed, WikiLeaks, for early access to all of our Star Wars content, and of course, subscribe to New Rock Stars on YouTube for breakdowns of everything you love. And uh, hey, hand me that medal, because all I ever want to do is touch a Wookiee. Their hugs just seem therapeutic.